Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin with some very good news tonight for a couple who just moved to the lower mainland from the East Coast. Their story went public when thieves made off with their U-Haul and almost everything they own. Ramina Dea is in our newsroom for us tonight. Ramina, thanks to police teamwork and a gut intuition, that U-Haul has been found. And that's not all. Sophie, not only did police reunite the couple with their wedding gifts and most of their belongings, they uncovered hundreds of thousands of dollars in additional stolen property. A remote Surrey home, the epicenter of a monster stolen property investigation spanning the Lower Mainland. We're looking at about a quarter of a million dollars in what is still a continuing and ongoing investigation. This story begins with Sabrina and Nathan Drover. The newlywed couple recently moved to B.C. from New Brunswick. Their entire lives stuffed in a U-Haul, which was stolen from an Abbotsford parking lot September 12th. It's been hard to realize that people could be so cruel to take all of your stuff. A break in the case after the couple went public. On Thursday, the police integrated road safety unit honed in on a stolen vehicle at a home in South Surrey, where police say they uncovered not only the drover's belongings, but also 12 stolen vehicles and another stolen U-Haul. This is, as I said, a, a hornet's nest and obviously a hub of criminal activity. I think this is a pretty good illustration of how a small number of individuals can wreak havoc not just on one community, but on numerous communities. 39-year-old Michael Urbaniak was arrested at the home. He's been charged with driving while prohibited and possession of stolen property. Now Abbotsford police believe this bust will make a dent in property crime. Half a dozen other suspects could still face charges. The couple super grateful tonight to everyone who stepped forward with donations during this rough time. Sophie, Chris. All right, thanks for that, Ramina. Five people have been taken into custody after two shootings in Surrey over the weekend. On both Saturday and Sunday, RCMP responded to reports of shots fired at a home in the 14700 block at 30th Avenue. The investigation led RCMP to White Rock, where they took five people into custody and seized three vehicles. RCMP believe the incidents to be targeted. If you have any information, you're asked to call Surrey RCMP. And possible closure to a baffling missing persons case. Human remains found at the base of Statloo Falls near Chehalis. The RCMP is working with the coroner service to determine the identity of the deceased, but it's the same area where the body of Gregory Tiffin of Vancouver was found back in July. His Australian-born girlfriend, Sophie Dowsley, has been missing ever since. RCMP say foul play is not suspected. It's a sore spot when it comes to Greater Vancouver's tight real estate market. Foreign buyers snapping up the local luxury market. Adding insult to injury recently, what appeared to be a deal. 
offered only to overseas buyers. Jeff Hastings has more on this supposed deal and why the developer says it's not quite what it seems. Jeff? Sophie, Ani has been taking a great deal of heat online lately for something they say they have nothing to do with. This Facebook post is the problem, or should I say was the problem. It's been deleted by Hongwen International Group. It claims to represent Ani at an exclusive sales event in Hong Kong, where buyers of condos at three Canadian properties will receive a special discount, which is cheaper than buying in Canada. The properties are 1335 Howe Street in downtown Vancouver, the Grand in Port Moody, and a Toronto Tower. But it turns out Hongwen International may have some explaining to do. We received a statement from Ani late this afternoon. Here's part of it from Ani Executive Vice President Chris Evans. The Ani Group has no connection to Hongwen International's marketing efforts and did not authorize any of their sales promotions mentioned in regards to our Vancouver and Toronto properties currently being sold. These statements, he goes on to say, are 100% false and are not condoned by Ani in any way. I attempted to get a statement from Hongwen International Group Limited earlier today, Sophie, with no response. Certainly one of those days where all is not as it seems. Certainly is. Thank you, Jeff. North Shore Rescue is sounding the alarm tonight about someone who is repeatedly taking down crucial signs and markers on North Shore trails. Tanya Beja joins us with more on this. And Tanya, this is not only a waste of resources, but also potentially putting lives in danger. That's right, Chris. North Shore Rescue suspects that somebody is trying to keep the trails private by making it harder for hikers to find their way, a move that puts the public at great risk. Wally Kircham is putting up another marker on Grouse Mountain to help hikers find their way. As long as you're somebody in your group is attentive, you're, it's like breadcrumbs. You're going to be able to follow these safely to the trail. But someone is removing the markers from four trails. And North Shore Rescue volunteers say the move is deliberate. The signs are fastened with spiral nails and often placed beyond reach. Every marker is removed. So we might put 200 markers on a trail and everyone would be gone. So And the trails, uh, the markers are actually physically removed. So they don't not just lying on the ground. Last night, crews had to rescue a man who lost his way on the old BCMC trail after markers there had gone missing. It's really frustrating and I think it could potentially lead to someone getting um, critically injured, if not um, killed. So it, it's no joke. North Shore rescue volunteers say they're busy enough answering emergency calls and now have to spend precious time replacing the missing signs. Those volunteers are asking for the public's help. They're, they want anybody who may see the culprit in action to snap a photo, send it to North Shore Rescue, and they will follow up with the RCMP. Chris and Sophie, back to you. All right, thanks very much, Tanya. Another head-shaking moment for police says they busted a distracted driver on the Lower Mainland. This tweet from Burnaby RCMP says it all. The driver caught playing Pokemon Go behind the wheel this morning. That scored him a $368 ticket, not to mention some social media backlash. With the clock ticking until marijuana becomes legal next July, the Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General announced today the start of a public consultation process to determine how legalized marijuana will be bought and sold and regulated in this province. They're looking to get feedback on such topics as what should the minimum age be, personal possession limits, and the issue of public consumption. 
Grace Key has more on how the public can weigh in and the aggressive timeline to get it all done. We're operating on a very tight timeline. With the change of government, B.C. is playing a bit of catch-up when it comes to how it plans to move forward with the legalization of marijuana in July. The Minister of Public Safety has just announced the start of a public consultation that will have to wrap up by November 1st. It's ambitious, but we want to have this done by the, the 1st of November. Um, in order to uh, put in place a system that works. The minister made the announcement at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention in Vancouver. UBCM will have a standing committee as part of the consultations. Legislation is one thing, and actually how you implement it. So the devil's always in the details. How are you going to implement it? How are law enforcement going to deal with it? And so the time frames are tight. And so we're very pleased that we're not waiting for resolutions to come to the floor saying we need more involvement. We want direct engagement with this. Attending the UBCM conference was former BC Health Minister Terry Lake. He now works for a medical marijuana company. Lake predicts both a public and private retail framework in BC. In British Columbia, it would not be surprising to me uh, if there was a government-run distribution and, and perhaps part of the retail was government-run, but that there would be an opportunity for uh, the private sector to be involved. With Vancouver and Victoria's history of regulating dispensaries, city leaders see the need to come up with solutions that tailor to their communities. You know, in the last two years, just managing, trying to manage Vancouver's approach, the diversity of opinion and thoughts is all over the place. And we really need to come up with a made in BC solution, and one that suits different municipalities differently. You can submit your feedback online by November 1st. Grace Key, Global News. And then there were five. That's the number of hats thrown into the ring to take the reins of the B.C. Liberal Party. Keith Baldry runs down the candidates so far, and who else might be adding their name to the list? Mike Morris, the MLA for Prince George uh, Mackenzie. <laughs> Michelle Stilwell, MLA for Parksville Qualicum. Ex-Cabinet Minister Andrew Wilkinson jumped into the B.C. Liberal leadership race today, showing off one of his key strengths, significant support from the Liberal caucus. Education is one of his main campaign themes. And that is the core of why I'm running to be the leader of the British Columbia Liberal Party, because it's about ensuring that British Columbians get the education, the training, and the retraining they need to succeed in the modern economy. Mike Bernier, the next leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, the next Meanwhile, it was a different scene just a few hours later as former Education Minister Mike Bernier attracted only a single sitting MLA to his leadership announcement. Bernier sending a message of the need to work together. People felt like the B.C. Liberals only cared about a AAA credit rating and the party did not care about them or their future. Well, I do care and it's why I want to lead this party. We have to do a better job helping those in need that I am putting my name forward to be the next leader of the B.C. Liberal Party. And yesterday saw the launch of former Surrey Mayor Diane Watts' leadership campaign. Again, no signs of Liberal caucus support, though, as Watts clearly wants to take the party in a new direction. And what many of you saw in this last election was a disconnect between the B.C. Liberals and British Columbians which was clearly articulated in the polls. So we have an opportunity. We have to reconnect. We have to create and build a new future and a new vision together. I'm Sam Sullivan. And the field is becoming crowded. Former Vancouver Mayor and MLA Sam Sullivan is already in. And look for veteran MLA Mike DeYoung to join the race soon, as will rookie MLA Mike Lee. Hi. 
I'm Todd Stone, a proud British Columbian. And former Transportation Minister Todd Stone. And it's a long race. The vote isn't even until next February, which means the candidates have a lot of work to do before then. And thank you for coming out today. Thank you. All right, five so far. Keith Baldry joins us now from Victoria. With such a crowded field, Keith, is there an obvious front runner at this point? I don't think there is. I think Diane Watts gets a disproportionate amount of media attention, but she hasn't been a member of the party for very long, doesn't really have a connection there. Uh, the others also have low profiles. But I would have to say that uh, Watts, Wilkinson, Stone, and maybe DeYoung probably share similar levels of support right now. Uh, the next tier would be Sam Sullivan, Mike Lee, uh, and uh, Mike Bernier, and Lucy Sager, who I haven't mentioned much. She's a businesswoman from Terrace who's also running. I'd put them in the next tier. Uh, but the sign-up is just beginning. Uh, they've got a lot of, a few months now to sign members up. Whoever can do that the most and the best is going to emerge on the first ballot uh, in the lead, and usually in a preferential ballot. Who's ever, on the, uh, who's ever first on the first count usually wins. But like I say, a lot before is going to happen before now in February. Many months to go. All right, Keith, thank you. A lot of B.C. families forced to wake up from a dream, the dream of single-family home ownership. It's fading fast. Financial realities are changing for a whole generation of British Columbians. How that is already starting to reshape the way our cities are built in just over a minute. We've not declared war on North Korea. Tensions rise between the U.S. and North Korea deciphering the difference between what they say and what they mean later. And Sundays are sacred for football fans, but this weekend it got political. The show of solidarity that has President Trump playing defense. Well, affordable housing in Metro Vancouver is harder to find than ever before. And one lower mainland mayor says it's going to change the way we live. Coquitlam's Richard Stewart says people have to face the new reality. Even in the suburbs, the dream of a single-family home is all but dead. John Hua reports. It was a community first built around Port Moody's rich oil history. What's left of the Ioko town site soon to become the centerpiece of the redeveloped Imperial Oil Lands. But will these relics of the past be the last standing single-family homes on the site? I think it's too bad there aren't more small homes. It's a sad thing not to be able to have your own home. I think there should still be that option. A recent motion to reserve the Ioko land solely for single-family homes defeated by Port Moody City Council. I think you get in an area like this, you're probably better off to say, let's not, not, let's not do anything now that would be a mistake later. Before, people could always count on the suburbs to keep the single detached dream alive. With finding a new build in that category becoming a long shot in Langley, some say that time in the Tri-Cities is well over. We go to my mum and dad's house for the garden, because they have it. We don't, so yeah, I think it's sad. In Coquitlam, the mayor says the single-family home no longer works in this region. I want our children to be able to live here, and the only way to do that is to rethink the housing forms that we've had for the last generation. Experts also say be careful what you wish for. Even a successful push for more single-family units doesn't mean the price tag will become more affordable. If it's only the uh, very rich or the very wealthy, um, I would say that's a complete mismatch of, of resources. For some, the reality of giving up on the dream for density is starting to sink in. In the future, I think a lot of people are going to become more minimalist and more uh, realize they don't need that much space. We'll just have stories of when we were younger. Metro Vancouver, the choice between moving up versus moving out, quickly becoming a thing of the past. John Hua, Global News.
Well, pretty soon we'll be plugging into an electrifying future. There's absolutely zero excuse to run out of power in an electric car. The technology is a century old, but only now going mainstream. The problem is, are we ready for it? Also tonight, total devastation in Puerto Rico with a hurricane-damaged dam under close watch. Thanks to the readers of Georgia Strait for our Best of Vancouver Award, Best Local TV Newscast. And for voting Chris Galas and Sophie Louie, Best Local TV News Anchors, Global News, proud to be BC's News. Municipal officials and urban planners from across B.C. gathered at BCIT in Burnaby today to get ahead of a transportation revolution. That's right. The electric vehicles on the roads right now are at a trickle, but I think the floodgates are about to open. And as Linda Aylesworth reports, municipalities are working to figure out how they're going to handle it. Nat Chikudo doesn't sell electric cars, but he could. It's clean. It's one of the safest vehicles on the planet. Charge at home and there's very low maintenance and you're leaving every morning with a full tank of electricity. Nat traded in his Hummer a couple of years ago for this Tesla Model X. Clearly, he has no regrets. Do you drive a, a gas vehicle? Yeah. I'm sorry to hear about that. <laughs> Today in a parking lot at BCIT in Burnaby, fellow electric car enthusiasts and city planners from throughout the province gathered under an enormous solar roof that powers an electric vehicle charging station known as Oasis to share and to learn about how to best serve the growing number of electric vehicle users. That presents challenges to the municipalities around how they manage the energy requirements for the electric vehicle charging, how they're going to set up charging stations. The increase in interest due to things like improvements in technology and infrastructure. A lot of the issues, range anxiety, um, battery storage, the ability to charge, those things are disappearing. There's so many more charging stations now, there's absolutely zero excuse to run out of power in an electric car. And in communities like Coquitlam, they're already working towards ensuring everyone who wants to plug in can do so. In new multifamily developments will require a 220-volt uh, infrastructure to 20% uh, of the parking spaces. I eventually see that as ultimately ending up at 100%. Then there's the expense and environmental damage caused by vehicles that burn fossil fuels to be considered. seems like there's a, a long-term savings to not just your electric bill but the environment. But we're part of the solution and unless everybody gets together, it doesn't work. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. A humanitarian crisis in Puerto Rico. This will not happen overnight. This is going to be a marathon. They survived the hurricane, but the struggle is only just beginning for those left behind. And we'll show you a stunning view of the northern lights. A raging torrent of water pours from a crumbling dam in Puerto Rico. It is stable at the moment, but nearby towns have been evacuated, and some 70,000 people are in danger from a potentially catastrophic collapse. And that's just one of a series of challenges facing the U.S. Commonwealth from the devastation left behind by Hurricane Maria. Puerto Ricans showing the world what happens when the perks of modern life that we all take for granted disappear. 
When Maria roared on shore, Puerto Rico's southeast corner endured the first impact. This is the town, yeah. In the coastal town of Maunabo, Norma Rosada lost the roof off her home and her small business blew away entirely. Many of us, we don't, we don't, we don't have a lot of money. That'll take us a long time to recover from the things that we lost. Now the hunt is on here for the basics. This woman snagging water from the side of a mountain. Everything is destroyed, she says. With mangled power lines everywhere and eye-popping lines at gas stations, people here feel paralyzed and disconnected. Satellite images show the island before Maria hit and after, now almost totally in the dark. No cell service either. And this woman hadn't been able to reach her family in Indianapolis. When offered a satellite phone, she tells them she's all right, but her 95-year-old grandfather passed away during the storm. Today, San Juan's airport packed as travelers rush to escape on the few commercial flights. The U.S. military delivering humanitarian aid, launching relief missions from the USS Kearsage by air and sea. The Marines are here. Marines are landing. Rushing to help clear roads. This will not happen overnight. This is going to be a marathon. In northwest Puerto Rico, engineers are inspecting a major dam after finding a crack. Thankfully, so far, it's holding. Well, it is sad to see the Outside whole, San Juan, Pastor Otonio Font runs me. this massive church that his father built and Maria ripped apart. And see it just destroy in, in just a few hours is really, you know, sad. But we are a church of hope, so we are going to rebuild. Rebuilding will take time for an island in crisis and in need. Gabe Gutierrez, NBC News, Mount Nabo, Puerto Rico. It is still, so far, only a war of words, but the battle between the U.S. and North Korea has reached its most troubling level yet. North Korea is calling Donald Trump's latest Twitter comments a declaration of war. On the same day North Korea said the U.S. has declared war, it released a computer simulation showing how it would destroy American aircraft and set a carrier ablaze. It's propaganda. But experts say there is now a real risk of an exchange of fire with nuclear-armed North Korea, or worse. The growing concern comes after President Trump stepped up his personal insults against Kim Jong-un, labeling him Little Rocket Man and tweeting he won't be around much longer. Beyond rhetoric, the U.S. this weekend flew two advanced bombers near North Korea's border. North Korea's foreign minister replied today. Since the United States declared war on our country, he said, we will have the right to make countermeasures, including shooting down U.S. bombers even outside North Korean airspace. We've not declared war on North Korea, uh, and frankly, the suggestion of that is absurd. Former NATO Supreme Allied Commander Admiral James Stavridis, an NBC News contributor, says this may go beyond a war of words. I would say the chances of an exchange of ordnance uh, are now approaching 50-50. He says North Korea could fire at an American jet or ship. The U.S. could fire back. We are at such a high level of potential escalation to full-blown war because of the relative inexperience of the leader in Pyongyang and the leader in Washington. The spokesman for the United Nations today seemed to agree. Fiery talk can lead to fatal misunderstandings. Concern President Trump and Kim Jong-un's game of brinkmanship could become a conflict. 
Anthony Weiner's sexting compulsion cost him his seat in Congress, his shot at becoming New York mayor, and his marriage. And today, it cost him his freedom. Weiner sentenced today to 21 months in prison for sexting with a 15-year-old girl. The 53-year-old wept as he told the court he had hit rock bottom and that he had been a very sick man for a long time. Well, we've seen it before, but it never gets old. The European Space Agency releasing new video of the Aurora Borealis shot from the International Space Station. Now, here's your high school science refresher course. The northern lights are caused by electrically charged electrons and protons in the Earth's magnetic field colliding with neutral atoms in the upper atmosphere. Or you just tell the kids it's magic. <laughs> And that I understand. Right. Okay. Three-year-old Drake is a happy, active little boy. He also has Down syndrome. Thanks to Variety, the children's charity, he's made some great strides since we first introduced him to you a year ago. But what we didn't tell you then is why this little boy is also the reason his mom, Shelly, is still with him today. Colleen Christie explains. How is he doing today? He's doing very well. He's such an, an outgoing free-spirited child. But at two, Drake couldn't stand without help. He's having a bit of troubles with the walking end of things because of the poor muscle tone. And that wasn't just a struggle for Drake. It's the cost of medication coverage. It's, it's everything, you know, it, it gas and parking fees. It's, it's a constant uh, battle. That's where Variety, the children's charity, steps in. Last year, Variety provided orthotic grants of more than $100,000, including one for Drake, so he could have his very first... Okay, Drake. ...custom-made orthotics. This will give him some of his support. Less than a year later... Good job. This on, is Drake. There we go. It was instant gratification, watching him get on his feet and walk. With the help of Variety and Drake's mom, Drake is succeeding. But that's just part of the story. You see, without Drake, there's a good chance his mom, Shelley, wouldn't be here. I was diagnosed with gastric cancer. I was already in my eighth week of chemotherapy and my tenth week of radiation. And I found out that I was ten weeks pregnant. Scary, but a blessing in more ways than one. They found that... The hormones that I was getting from my pregnancy and the antibodies I was getting from Drake helped to put my cancer into remission. Drake saved my life. I'm not going to say there are days when I cry my eyes out and want to rip my hair out. <laughs> but thanks to Variety. I love them. Without their help, he would not, he would not be where he is today. And Drake. The future looks bright. <laughs> Colleen Christie, <laughs> Global News. Well done, Drake. Mm -hmm. Well, this Saturday night, Variety presents the Gold Heart Gala at the Fairmont Pacific Rim. I will be there along with Colleen Christie, and it promises to be an amazing evening. You can get tickets and more information at variety.bc.ca. Uh, you and Colleen and a lot of other very accomplished ladies have put a lot of time into that gala, <laughs> and I'm uh, so proud of you guys. For Thank you. It's going to be a fun night. Sure is. Doing it for Drake. All right, professional football is now much more than a game. And the
How many players in the National Football League are taking a stand by kneeling down? And love match. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle step out together for the first time to watch tennis. Well, they were together over the weekend at the opening ceremonies of the Invictus Games, albeit several rows apart. After the forecast, we'll show you how Prince Harry and Meghan Markle made their relationship official in Toronto today. With lots of British press in tow as well. Right now, though, we're going to check in with meteorologist Christy Gordon and a look at the weather forecast heating up through the week, it looks like. Yes, you gave it away, Chris. Oh, <laughs> wow. Sorry about that. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, I'm amazing. You know, I, I really thought that we were done with the summer and not in a good way, meaning I didn't think Mother Nature had it in her to bring it back, and it looks like she will. So that's what we're going to look at is which two days of this week are going to look phenomenal for you. Uh, before we move on, though, participation is helping Canada celebrate 150 years by presenting 150 ways to stay fit. Today's suggestion for you is shoreline or community cleanup. And uh, today was a little cloudy, a little uh, showery, but I'm sure uh, many of you enjoyed a little bit of a reprieve. But it is the heat that we are going to be enjoying over the next couple of days, and you'll be able to get out there and do the cleanup. Uh, this is what it looked like across the province with that cloud cover and a few isolated showers. It was mild though temperatures right where we should be for this time of year vancouver that's uh 18 17 18 degrees i wanted to mention quickly a huge improvement when it comes to the fires of note across the province now we only have seven six of them still in that southeastern corner elephant hill fire still burning strong uh, but a big improvement and i think we'll continue on that trend as we head into certainly into fall although the two days that we mentioned may not help much this is what's on deck the warm front is going to cross into the north coast spreading a chance of showers still into the central interior regions but the general trend will be for this system to drive to the north and that is that ridge of high pressure the upper level ridge that's going to drive that system to the north and bring in the warmth and the sunshine to the rest of the province so still a chance of showers and some cloud cover across the province in the morning and then we'll start to see that transition so there's the rain across the north coast uh, areas in the interior like prince george and quinella a slight chance of showers in the morning before you start to see that sunshine. But southern BC, a mix of sun and cloud, that chance of showers in the Columbia region just in the morning. And for the south coast, I have a lot of drops in your icons here, but it's really just a, a drizzly, cloudy morning, maybe a bit of fog in through the morning before that system is driven to the north and we start to see things clear out. So I think by dinner time, at least by sunset, you will be enjoying sunshine. And then this is what we're focusing in on those two days. Look at that. 28 degrees potentially on Thursday. Happy birthday to two women, Louise Steer, celebrating 100 years and 107th birthday for Catherine Lindy. Congratul uh, yes, Lindley. Uh, congratulations to you. Muriel and Andy Andrews celebrating 72 years together in uh, Castlegar. Congratulations. And this from John Bukers. This is Katie having a little nap. They were traveling along the House Sound Crest Trail uh, just this weekend. That's a 29K hike. So no wonder mm. Katie's having a little nap. I bet. I'd be laying down too. All right. Mm. Thanks, thanks very much, Christy. Thanks, Christy. It has been rumored that Prince Harry and his girlfriend Meghan Markle would make their first official appearance as a couple at the Invictus Games in Toronto. And in a carefully planned photo op, they did just that. The prince and the Toronto-based actress walked hand-in-hand hand to the wheelchair tennis event. Once there, they sat side-by-side, side, chatting and cheering on the athletes. 
Afterwards, they lingered for a few minutes, talking to people in the crowd, too. Dozens of British photographers had traveled to Toronto specifically to try to get the first picture of the two together at an official event. And they got it. All right, television viewers, uh, <laughs> television viewers watching ESPN's Monday Night Football earlier tonight saw something they don't usually see. The network breaking with tradition and airing the national anthem part of the pregame. The Dallas Cowboys with their owner Jerry Jones kneeling on the field before the national anthem and then linking arms on the sidelines. The Arizona Cardinals linking arms with members of the American military. All of this coming after a weekend wave of protests across the NFL against President Donald Trump. Meantime, the White House is playing defense tonight in the face of an overwhelming assault from the league. After a wave of defiance, the sports world standing up to the president by kneeling down. Tonight, some of the greatest athletes are calling out President Trump. We have to figure out a way how we come together and be as great as we can be as a people. Um, because the people run this country, not one individual, and damn sure not him. But the president's not backing down. Today tweeting, stand for our anthem, insisting the issue of kneeling has nothing to do with race. Despite his polarizing comments attacking Colin Kaepernick, among others, who began taking a knee during the national anthem last year to highlight police brutality and racial injustice. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag? To say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now. Out. He's fired. He's fired. The roster of critics growing, including Patriots quarterback and Trump friend Tom Brady. I certainly disagree with, you know, what he said and, and, and you know, thought it was just divisive. This isn't about the president being against anyone, but this is about the president and millions of Americans being for something being for honoring our flag, honoring our national anthem. The intersection of sports and politics dates back decades from Muhammad Ali to Mexico City. But now fresh battle lines are being drawn. Several NASCAR owners warning they'll boot teammates who demonstrate. While one of the sport's biggest names, Dale Earnhardt Jr., is voicing his support for peaceful protests. See the first line in his... Yeah, it is amazing. First line in his, in his Twitter handle or Twitter description there is former backup quarterback for Mooresville High School football team. He knows <laughs> a, he's humble about his beginnings, I guess, even though he's a NASCAR superstar. Or football's the number one priority. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> Seems like it could be. And to think the national anthem in North American sports started by accident. Yeah. Mm. In World War I, they would play music at baseball games, and they played the Star Spangled Banner, and everybody started standing up. Mm. And it just sort of went from there. Okay, I just thought I'd throw that historical note in. Nice. Even if it helps you or it doesn't help you. Hey, the NHL is cracking down on slashing. In fact, the only slash they will tolerate this year is this. Slashing penalties aplenty in the preseason as refs try to change the players' mindset. And why those heading to the pumpkin patch this year may be in for a surprise. All right, Squire's turn. Yes, thank you very much. I've been waiting all day. Uh, every couple of years, the NHL picks something that has always been in the rule book, and they tell refs, start calling it a lot. This year in the preseason, it's face-off cheating and slashing. But of the two, slashing is the big one. It's something every player does. And I don't mean the big 
obvious wood chopping slashes. I mean the ones that look like love taps, especially across the hands. Those are the targets, and for good reason. They can injure fingers and injure hands. So the preseason has turned into a penalty fest. Los Angeles, number 21, has two minutes for slashing. Vancouver, number 33, has two minutes for slashing. Being just every year from, from slashing or, or tapping, or I mean, it, it is a lot of force that comes down on your fingers. And with the gloves the way they're built right now, there's, there's no protection. Now this is something the NHL wants out of the game, obviously. Sidney Crosby whacking Mark Mathot, breaking his finger, and getting no penalty. But people who've played and play the game know it's not just the big slashes that can cause damage. You can slash a guy with one hand and break a finger. You can slash a guy with two hands really hard and not catch him in the right spot and nothing, nothing happens. Most slashes are not intended to hurt someone. They're used more to harass a player, but even those are off limits now. You know, you always want to, especially when they're trying to make a pass or they, they got a half a step on you, you want to, you know, hit their stick just so that they can't make the perfect pass or whatever. But now it's almost like if you're not on right top of them, you can't, you can't even use your stick other than putting it in the lane. And uh, players are so good these days, they can, they can find that lane. I think we all know what the NHL is trying to do. And the onus is going to be on the players to keep their sticks away from hands. And, uh, you know, it's not an easy job the refs have calling it. And there's probably going to be some times where they miss that call and, and times that they call it and you think it's a little soft. But uh, at the end of the day, the message is that they're trying to protect the players and that's what it's about. Well, as you can see, the Canucks are all back together again. Kids and older players were at Rogers Arena continuing with the preseason. In fact, uh, one of the lines today was the Sedins with Brock Besser. That might be fun to watch in the regular season if it holds together and give the Sedins a pure shooter alongside of them. Of course, Besser had to stay in Canada while the Sedins and the older players were in China for a couple of games against the Kings. If there was one complaint about the China visit, it's that they had to play the games on the bigger Olympic ice surfaces. I, I thought they might put in our size, NHL size rinks uh, over there. I mean, they, they know for a while that... Uh, we're going to go there, so uh, we didn't show up as a, as a surprise. So I thought it was going to be our size rank, but that's, uh, that wasn't the case, so we got two games here to, to prepare. Well, yesterday the Seattle Seahawks, uh, Legion of Boom, went bust, and they got beaten Tennessee despite four touchdown passes from Russell Wilson. Four TD passes with that defense, that usually is an automatic win for the Hawks, but yesterday the defense was the reason Seattle lost. And of all the breakdowns yesterday in Nashville, DeMarco Murray's 75-yard touchdown run was the most disturbing. The Seahawks have not allowed this far a run for a TD since 2009, since before there was a Legion of Boom. And uh, that's, that's what rubs me the, the, uh, the wrong way the most because that's not who we are. The last two weeks we've given up more yards than we have since I've been here, I think, in the, rush, in the running game. And... Um, uh, it's just something we need to fix, and I think we will, though. I, I, I truly, deep down inside, think we will fix it. We have the guys. We have the personnel. We have all everything we need to be great, and we're going to do it. Now, if there was a bright spot, it was the Hawks' offense with four touchdown passes from Russell Wilson. But despite that, nobody was really looking on the bright side after losing in Tennessee. feels terrible, but, you know, at the end of the day, we lost by six points on the road, and, and it felt terrible. So, you know, I think of... We start playing better and eventually playing our potential. We'll be coming in, you know, rolling teams. 
That's my honest opinion, but uh, we're just not going to die. As you saw before the break, Cowboys owner Jerry Jones and the players all taking a knee, locking arms before the anthem. Cardinals and Cowboys in Phoenix. Jerron Brown, that's a nice catch. And made it 7 0 in the first. Carson Palmer with the throw. Cowboys offense has been struggling so far this year, but Dak Prescott faked the Zeke Elliott. He's going himself. He's going in. Up and over. 7-7 at halftime, Cowboys and Cardinals. Have to show you this one more time from yesterday. Marcus Cooper picks up the block kick. He's going for a touchdown. Ooh, that's spectacular just before halftime. And then he decides to showboat and slow down just before the goal line, and he gets the ball knocked out of his hands by Vance McDonald. Now, they did come away with a field goal on that, but that should have been seven. That's why you don't showboat until you get into the end zone. He should have learned the lesson of Leon Lett and the Stanford band, but he didn't. Now he does. Coaches everywhere. You gotta cross the line. <laughs> you gotta cross the line. Cross the line. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Jay Durant now for a look ahead to Global News at 11. Jay? Thanks very much, Sophie. The city of Port Moody is hosting an open house tonight to get feedback on the potential for monster homes. We'll be speaking with a local resident who is trying to preserve the character of his community, why he says these supersized dwellings will further impact the affordability crisis and hurt local businesses. We'll also have reaction from the mayor of Port Moody and what he thinks of monster homes in his community. That story and much more coming up tonight at 11. All right. Thanks, Jay. And when we come back, a growing problem in the pumpkin patch. Coming up on ET Canada, it sure feels like fall now. We are dropping by the sets of Kevin Can Wait, The Brave, and Kim's Convenience. Plus, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle take over Toronto for the Invictus Games. And why Shania Twain thought she would never sing again. All of that coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But for now, it's back to you, Chris and Sophie. All right. Thanks a lot, Cheryl. Summer might be over, but the side effects of that record-breaking stretch of weather are not over. As Jennifer Palmer reports tonight, it might have an effect on your Halloween plans. This is the biggest pumpkin in the whole world! The pumpkin patch, a favored fall family outing, as everyone hunts for the perfect pumpkin. I'm going to decorate my house. Blushes and ivories and grays, you can't even find them. My girls love coming here every year for the uh, rides and everything, so... And I just sat around and watched them. But getting pumpkins to market might be a challenge for some farmers this year. Our hot and dry record-breaking summer made it tougher to grow these plants. At some patches, pumpkins are smaller or not growing at all. But at Taves Family Farms, they didn't take any chances. So how is this year's crop doing? Well, the pumpkins actually this year are doing phenomenally well. Um, We had challenges in other crops we were growing because of the heat. After losing part of his berry crop two years ago to extreme heat conditions, Taves decided to irrigate. It's what saved his patch this year. Uh, it's been very challenging, actually. There's been, as you know, very little rain. So on the farm, we had to react and put in drip irrigation on crops normally we didn't have to do. it. If you look at a pumpkin, it's pretty heavy, and most of that actually is water. And in order to do that, we'd give the, each plant probably about a liter a day. This summer's weather impacted the Taves' other main crop, though, apples. Take a look at this one. It's half the size it should be. That's because the irrigation line it was on wasn't working properly. Where the line was working, the apples are full size. Irrigation has become really important. It costs about eight dollars to $10,000 gross value in pumpkins per acre. This is just under two acres right here. 
However, not all growers have irrigation, leaving some to predict there might be a pumpkin shortage this year. Jennifer Palma, Global News. What about the pumpkin pie and the oh. pumpkin seeds? <laughs> what are you going to do? Get the big ones while you can. The pumpkin lattes. What about the great pumpkin? Well, the great pumpkin will come and fix it all. You know, I grew pumpkins for the first time this year.